Uh, this month, we're looking at four big life questions. The series is called That Explains It. And these are questions about the way we see the world and the way we interact in the world. We might call them worldview questions. Um, the importance of our answers to these questions, I don't think, can be overestimated because our answers to these basic worldview questions, they dictate why we do what we do, how we see the world. And if we want to put it in the negative, we could easily argue that much of, if not all of the pain that we experience in life is due to untrue or incorrect answers to these questions. When we get the answers to these basic questions wrong, all kinds of dissonance and frustration comes into the story uh, and, our, and our own experience. As I've said in the last few weeks, uh, I'm leaning hard on the teachings of Dallas Willard for this series. Uh, he taught philosophy at the University of Southern California for over 40 years. And uh, he's also written a bunch of books on Christian spirituality, including a book called Knowing Christ Today, which really got my attention last fall when I was able to teach it as part of a, a, a class that I did, Knowing Christ Today, Dallas Willard. So I'm, I'm leaning on him. I want you to know that. Some of his insights have really shaped um, the series, and I'll quote from him throughout it. So here are the big three, th the three life questions that we've considered so far in this series. The first is the reality question. What is reality? What is the ultimate truth, the ground of being? What is that which can be relied on all of the time? According to Jesus, it's God and God's kingdom. That is not an illusion. That is actually true. That is what, at the end of the day, we can count on. The existence of God and the reality of his kingdom. That means his, his reign where his will happens. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, ultimate reality is God and God's kingdom. That was two weeks ago. Second question, and it's based on the first question, is the who has it made question. Who has it made is based on your understanding of reality. In other words, if wealth and comfort is the ultimate reality, if that's what you can count on, if that's what really matters, then whoever has the most material wealth has it made. If power and control is the ultimate reality, then whoever wields control has it made, right? If, if it really comes down to who is popular, if popularity is the reality, the key reality, the ultimate reality, then whoever is popular, and it doesn't matter if you're popular for a good reason or a bad reason, because that's irrelevant, if popularity is the, the ultimate reality, then whoever is popular has it made. If instead God and God's kingdom are ultimately what's real, then whoever has it made is the person who is alive in the kingdom of God. You follow me? Whoever is alive in the, in the kingdom of God. In other words, the person who has a real and dynamic daily, this actually matters relationship with God, that person has it made, even if that person is mourning, even if that person is poor. How can that be? Because if ultimate reality is the existence of God and experiencing the power and the presence of God, then if you're alive in that reality, you are, in Jesus' words, you're blessed. You're blessed. Does not make sense according to other views of reality. If they're right, it doesn't make sense. 
Jesus says ultimate reality is God and his kingdom. Therefore, whoever is alive in the kingdom has it made is blessed. That's what's real. And if you're experiencing that, then you're blessed. Uh, here's a story. A couple of years ago, it's actually been more than that. Several years ago, I ran into an old friend. And I asked him how he was. And he said, I'm great. Life is great. And I like to ask why questions. So I said, why is life great? And the answer that he gave was so simple, I admit, I felt at the time it was too simplistic. This is what he said. Because I'm Christian, that's what he said. Now, you have to understand that people tend to over-spiritualize their language when they talk to pastors. It's just something I've observed, right? Maybe you've observed it, right? It, there seems to be, uh, it's common for people to use excessively spiritual language when, when, they, when they talk to me. And I get it. I totally understand because I do the same thing when I run into like uh, a dental hygienist. All of a sudden, I'm like really conscious of my teeth. And I, and I start saying like, yeah, I love flossing. I just love it. I do it all the time. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I was like, where did that come from? Uh, but it's like this awareness or something. So I, I get it. So I admit, I smiled at my friend's enthusiasm. Why is life great? Because I'm Christian. I smiled at that, but I, I didn't actually take him that seriously. I'm just being honest with you. But then I kept coming back to that exchange over and over again over the next few months. I don't know. Something about it made, me, it, made it hard to write it off. I kept coming back to it over and over again. Why is life great, I said. Because I'm Christian, he said. And then occasionally, over the last few years, I've run into this guy. I see him about twice a year. And, um, and it has become very clear to me that he is totally genuine and authentic. That answer was the perfectly honest answer, that he wasn't blowing smoke or anything. That was the truth. That's what, he, that's what he's experiencing. Life is great. Now, life for him has actually been hard, but he says life is great, and he's not pretending. Here's what's happening. What he actually values to be the highest reality is what he is also experiencing, which is the power and the presence of God in the midst of daily real life. He's experiencing it. And what's interesting to me is he's not some hyper, this might, he's not some hyper annoying, overly religious fanatic type of a person that you might, no, he is an understated, serious-minded kind of a quiet guy. I think he's in some sort of federal law enforcement. He's not, he's like a no-nonsense guy. But he is actually experiencing what he regards to be the most valuable reality in life. What is that? A relationship with God, right? And he simply knows he's blessed. How is life? Life's great. Why, he says, or I say. And when I look back on that short conversation, I find it remarkably refreshing his response moved me in a way that was different than a lot of people who responded the exact same way. How is life? Life's great. Why is life great? Well, we're about to retire. The kids are out of the house. We do what we want. We spent some time in Bali last month. No, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't, it's not compelling to me. Why is life great? Because I have, an, I have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. I am in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, come on. I'm like, okay, that's what I'm looking for, right? That's compelling to me. Seriously, if that's your answer and you're genuine with that, that is so compelling to me. Why is life great? Because I'm, I'm in a relationship 
with the true lover of my soul. So there's the reality question, and then there's the who has it made question. And then the third big question that we're looking at today is the character question. In other words, who is good? Who is a really good person? We are deeply concerned with this question, more so than we want to admit. We are concerned about this question. We're interested in this question, and not just us who happen to be at a church on a Sunday morning. Everybody's interested in this question. Almost everybody is focused on some level about, around the reality of, of this question, concerned with who is good and what really is a good person. In other words, the knowledge that we're really searching for is not just knowledge of what is real, but also knowledge of what is good. We're really asking about the reality of life and also what is good in life. We're asking the character question as well. It's the reality question and the character question that matter. And here's where our collective longing, not just for professional success or financial success or some sort of social success, but for ethical or moral success or wholeness, here's where our longing for that moral wholeness becomes really clear. Can you guess where that becomes really clear? What kind of a situation in which that becomes really clear? Right? I think it becomes really clarified at funerals. I think that's where we recognize somehow together in maybe just a brief moment um, how much we really do focus on this what is or who is good question. I think this is why I have more patience for funerals than for weddings. I, I don't really want to say that I like funerals more than I like weddings, but I have more patience for funerals because it seems to me that there's this level of honesty that exists in funerals. And it has something to do with the who is good question. This is what I mean. It doesn't matter how wealthy the person was. It doesn't matter how popular the person was. It doesn't matter how, po how powerful the person was. At every funeral, people are longing to say one thing about the person. Do you know what they're trying to say? Do you know what they're trying to say about the person? What does everybody want to say about the person at the funeral? A good person, right? They were a good person. She was a good person. He was a good person. It's like... It's like we recognize, and I've seen people, and maybe you have too, just reach for any sliver of evidence of some sort of moral compass in a person at the funeral. I've witnessed some remarkable revisionist history at, at funerals where people know, you know, I, I experienced him in this way, but we're all trying to really point out somehow some evidence that, you know what, at the end of the day, he really was a good person. It's brutal to watch. People, this is what I've witnessed over years of being at funerals. People will do the best to tell a funny story, and then they'll tell another funny story, and then they'll tell another funny story, and you can see it in their face. It begins to miss. It doesn't connect. They feel the emptiness in what they're trying to do, and then it compounds when they recognize that all those who are gathered, the laughter's getting more and more shallow. It's not really working. And so you'll watch them do this. It happens almost every single time. They will devolve and default to this. Well you know what, she was really a good person. <laughs> they'll just come out and say it. He, he was really a great guy. He was a great guy. And they'll, and they'll try to like, because that's what they know, that's what matters. It's like something inside of us, we all know that's what matters. That's why it happens. Because there's something in us that recognizes, maybe even for a second, as you look back over a whole life, which we almost never do except at a funeral, the importance of the who is good question all of a sudden becomes really clear. It's one of the big life questions. Everybody longs to be good, to be worthy, not just to be successful, but to be good. 
You might see a radically successful athlete. Maybe you went to school with somebody as a kid, and now they've become really, really wealthy. You might think they have it made. It might be natural to think, they, oh, man, she totally has it made. But you might, if we were in a conversation with each other, you might qualify your assessment of their having had it made um, if you did not sense that their character was worthy of admiration. If you didn't sense that their character was worthy of admiration. Dallas Willard writes, how you answer the reality question and, secondly, the blessedness question cannot be separated from the question of who is worthy of moral approval. In other words, maybe it doesn't matter if you're the owner of Amazon. Or maybe it doesn't matter that you're the president of the United States if your character is not admirable, right? Maybe we need to question an assessment of having had it made, they've made it, if that assessment doesn't include in it some kind of moral or ethical component. You follow what I'm saying? Willard writes, there's a lingering suspicion that you cannot have had a good life if you failed to be a good person. And to be a good person is a large part of genuine success or blessedness or what it means to have it made. So let's look at Jesus' answer to the question, who is good? And let's talk about that for a minute. Jesus responds to the question, who is good, in this way. Anyone who is pervaded with love, anyone who is filled with love and giving love. Where does he say that? Well, he says it all over the place in word and in his actions. Here's one place where it's very directly stated, Matthew chapter 22, towards the end of the first gospel. It's actually in uh, at least three, maybe all four gospels, this conversation takes place. Here's Matthew's account. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. little context. These are Sadducees and Pharisees are religious groups. They are Jewish sects. They have, they're both Jewish, but they have different perspectives on how to engage culture, what priorities are. Their theology is a little bit different when it comes to details. Jesus has just taken the Sadducees to school on the issue of the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus says, actually, you're wrong. The Pharisees hear that that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and so then they get together. One of them, an expert in the law, the Pharisees are all about perfect uh, adherence to the Jewish law, the rule. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourselves. And then Jesus answers this, or adds this powerful, provocative statement, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So understand a couple of things. Understand that by the law, Jesus is referring to the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, that's the law. And by the prophets, Jesus is referring to the rest of the Jewish scriptures, the rest of the Old Testament. So understand that in this time, it is a widely um, embraced 
uh, value or um, a point at which a lot of people would say, oh, he really knows what he's talking about or she really knows what she's talking about if, is, is if a person has the ability to demonstrate mastery over a certain topic by summarizing it. If you could take a complex issue and summarize it, this was just seen in, in the time as, wow, they, they are brilliant. They get it. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus is going to summarize the whole of Jewish scriptures, the, the full of so many commands with essentially just four words. What does the Old Testament say to do, in other words? According to Jesus, love God, love neighbor. It's not only brilliant, but it's very instructive to us because it articulates a biblical or a Christian ethic right out of the scriptures that were being used by Christ, our Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Love God, love neighbor. In other words, what is Jesus' answer to the who is good question? Anyone who is pervaded with love. Anyone who is filled with love. We could look all kinds of scriptures about love because all of the New Testament especially lifts love up as this Christian ethic. Let me just point out two more really short ones because they're so specific. Jesus' disciple John, he writes three letters and the Revelation, the last four books of the New Testament and the Bible. First John includes this statement. John says in chapter 4, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And then a couple verses later, he says, we love because he first loved us. So this is where this is coming from, right? It's not something we conjure up on. No, we love because God first loved us. So Jesus' answer to the who is good question, which he directly addresses, and those who follow him, like the disciple John directly address, is a person, a good person is anyone who is pervaded with love. All right, so let me summarize the first three big questions that we've asked over the last couple of weeks. The first is the reality question. What is reality? Jesus' response, God and God's kingdom. Second question, well, then who has it made or who is blessed or what is the blessed life? According to Jesus, anyone who is alive in the kingdom of God, like my friend, who has a real relationship with God that is making a difference, knows he's blessed. Okay, then the third question, who is good? According to Jesus, whoever is pervaded with love. Three more thoughts about this, okay? Three more thoughts. A thought about tension, a thought about desire, and a thought about sensuality. Here's the tension, and, and I think this is the most important part of what I'm going to say, because this is where stuff breaks down. The tension that we run up against in a lot of situations, it reveals a couple of things. It reveals that our answers to those three questions that I just summarized are not the same as Jesus' answers. Okay. Um, the, the, the tension reveals the truth, in other words, about how we are actually seeing the world. If you experience or can resonate with the tension I'm about to talk about, it's probably because in your deepest heart, your answers to those three questions are not the same as Jesus' answers. Here's where the tension is revealed. Our perspective on the who has it made question, if you were to say, that's really kind of in real life, that's what we're shooting for, 
our perspective on the who has it made question is influenced by the, our answer to the what is real question, and it's also influenced by our answer to the um, who is good question. Because it's not just what's real that we're interested in. We're also interested in this ethical component, this moral component, the, the, the funeral idea, the who is good. Where tension comes into our life is where the answers that are required in order for you to live out according to your view of what is real, conflict with the answers that you know are good. In other words, if your job, if, according, if, your, if your view of reality is like financial success, that's just real life, that's what's got to happen for a variety of reasons. That's what's dictating my view of the world, right? At some point, probably you have examples from your own life. Your professional life required you to do certain things in order to have it made, in order to advance, in order to keep the job, in order to be, um, to be respected in your industry, in order to make the sports team, in order to be accepted in the group of friends at school. There's certain rules. There's the way they see the world. That's what is real. You got to do certain things in order to have it made. Here's where the tension comes in. When those certain things you got to do, you know they're not good. You can't, with a clear conscience, do those things because they're in conflict. The answer to the who is good question says you got to do this, but the answer to the who, what is real question, it, it causes you to have to do something else. And so there's conflict, there's tension, there's these pressures, right? Here's an easy example that'll help us get, if our view of reality is profit, financial profit, if that's just what's run in our life, practically speaking, day in and day out, then who has it made? Whoever makes the most profit, right? Whoever captures the most profit, which you can imagine does not always line up with who is a good person, right? And so your reality of, uh, your view of reality is in conflict with your ethics, and there's the tension, why are we talking about this? Because, friends, this specific tension is brutal for the soul. This is, it rips up the soul. Here is where people sell out. Right here. This is where we sell out. This is where we say things like, well, I'm a Christian, but it's really hard to carry my faith into my job. Right? I'm a Christian, but I don't really act like a Christian on the football team. Because of this, right? Because the view of reality is in tension with what you know to be right and good. Isn't it interesting? We know. But there's this tension. And the tension will exist unless, unless our answer to the what is real question lines up with Jesus' answer to the what is real question. Right? If we begin with what matters most, with what is most real, what did Jesus say? God and God's kingdom. Then being a good person creates no conflict. There's no conflict anymore. There's no longer any tension. In other words, if I embrace Jesus' worldview, I don't have to surrender my integrity in order to have it made. If I embrace Jesus' worldview, I no longer have to surrender my integrity in order to have it made. 
I thought about desire. Jesus summarizes the ethic of Scripture as love God, love neighbor. And according to Jesus, a good person is anyone who's pervaded with love, right? Okay, what does he mean, though? What does he mean by love? Love means wanting or willing the good. To love your neighbor means you want what's good for your neighbor. And it's not just what you want, but you will it. You actually work for it. You do it. You do what's good for your neighbor. The word love, friends, is so loosely applied in our culture that it's really hard for us to know what the heck it means. We've lost a sense of what it means to love. Dallas Willard writes, we may say, listen to this, think about a chocolate cake. We may say we love chocolate cake, but we don't love chocolate cake. Rather, we want to eat it. Okay? That, that is desire. That is not love. In our culture, we have a great problem distinguishing between love and desire. But it is essential that we do so. What a great insight. We are so loose with our use of the word love, we apply it to chocolate cake. We are confused about what it means to love, and it complicates all kinds of things. When Jesus teaches his followers to love, he uses the word agape, which means to will the good for the other person. Not to consume the other person like a piece of chocolate cake, not to use the other person like a piece of leverage, right, or to leverage the relationship, to love, to will the good. Love is focused on others, and it's focused on their good, on their good. Desire, in contrast, is connected to consumerism. I want to consume the chocolate cake. I want to eat the chocolate cake. I want to take the chocolate cake. I want to use the chocolate cake for me. Love is connected with sacrifice. When, where did it, when we define love according to Christ, right? Love is connected to sacrifice. Who is good? The whole world's asking that question in one way or another. Jesus' response, anyone who loves, understand that to mean the person who feeds. Instead of eating, you're feeding. Instead of taking, you're giving. Instead of using, you are building someone up. The person who loves, according to Christ's definition of love, is sacrificing in order to give, in order to support and build up another. Right? So that was a thought about, um, it was a thought about, what was the first one? Desire. Um, here's a thought about sensuality. Specifically, sensuality as a guide to life. Dallas Willard argues, I think convincingly, that in the United States and in the West in general, sensuality or feeling is the guide that we use both for what is real and for what is good. What does that mean? It means if it feels good, do it. That's what that means. If it feels good, do it. That's what we apply to many questions in order to determine is that real and is it good? Well, if it feels good, do it. As a culture, we do what we want. We celebrate the ability to do whatever we want. We nearly worship it. And what do we want? Well, our wants are based on what we feel like doing, our feelings. And that kind of worldview, and I think you probably would agree with me, I think that way of seeing the world is so clearly leading to brokenness in our families and in our, our church communities and in our culture. It's that rampant selfishness. Forget what you think. It's, this is how I feel. 
So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what I feel. Dallas writes, desire not reality is what is good and what rules the world. That is even true for the most part within religion. Most of what Americans do in their religion now is done at the behest of feeling. They judge Christian activities like what you're doing here, coming to church or praying or reading the Bible. They judge Christian activities and their own religious condition according to their feelings. The quest for pleasure takes over the house of God. What is good or what is true is no longer the guide. What is good or what is true is no longer the guy. Okay, so is he saying we should just forget our emotions? No, he's not saying that. Not saying that. Is he saying that feelings don't matter? Absolutely not. Our feelings matter. They reveal a lot to us. But do feelings or our senses, do they always reveal what is true? No, they don't. They're remarkably famous for being deceptive, in fact. Our feelings are deceptive. Should we prioritize our feelings, then, as the ultimate proof of what is real? And what is good? Clearly, no, we, we shouldn't. We need a different barometer. We need a different uh, answer to the question. I think the backdrop of Jesus' teaching to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself, the backdrop to that teaching is the awareness that we usually don't. <laughs> right? We have largely failed on these accounts. Our hearts wander. Our minds are double-minded. When pressure is turned up, we look out for number one. We look out for ourselves. We typically act selfishly. We take. We do not love. So the invitation today, friends, is, is simply this. The invitation, what I'm inviting you to do is not to go do something. What I'm inviting you to do today is to believe that Jesus' answer to the who is good question is the right answer. That's the invitation. And even a little bit more broadly, I'm inviting you to believe that Jesus' way of seeing the world is the right way. That that's the good way. That that's the true way. That what matters most here is, is what we sometimes get a little glimpse of at funerals. Just for a minute, we, we realize how important it actually is to be not just successful, but to be good. And then that we would look to Jesus for the answer for the what is or who is good question. And that we wouldn't rush past it. When you heard me say, well, it's love, a lot of you went, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I know that. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. The love, right? Love answer. No, it's not. Let's slow down, though. Let's slow down and not rush past that. The, the invitation is to hold that up. Like, this is really, really important. This is what it means to be good. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. That is who you actually are. And that we would be filled with love, filled with love for others. Who is good is the question. And the invitation is to just recognize that Jesus says it has to do with love and that we would allow that to speak maybe a fresh, in a fresh way to us, this word that we're very used to but really have kind of neutered in terms of its potency.
I'll wrap up with this. This is from Paul. He says this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I have the gift of prophecy, meaning I can tell you what's about to happen because I know the truth of God, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing, Paul says. And if I give all I possess to the poor and I give my body over to hardship so that I may boast, I have gained nothing if I do not have love. I've missed it, he says, right? Uh, I have missed the point. I have answered it incorrectly. So next Sunday, we're going to wrap up the series by answering the question, well, how do you become good according to Jesus? How do you become good? But for today, may God give us the grace to simply recognize the remarkable importance of love. Friends, may our answer to the question, be love. Let's pray together. God, so against the backdrop of achievement and the value of success, even within the spiritual context, I pray for a renewed vision of, of love as, as the point. I pray that you would enable me and us um, to answer the question, who is good, honestly, and to reflect on our lives, our hearts, our minds uh, with, a, with a sense of uh, authenticity and genuine transparency. I pray for a recognition of how blessed we are to be invited into a relationship that is characterized by love with you. And I pray, Lord, for the grace to be filled with love, to be pervaded with love for you and for one another. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.